Are you an agent struggling to understand real estate economics? Would you benefit from learning how top agents structure their businesses? Then you've come to the right place. And welcome to another edition of the Nerdy Agent Podcast, where we teach you the basic economic and business principles you need to thrive in today's real estate market. I'm your host, Luke Pedersen, with my brothers and fellow nerds, Josh and AJ. We're not going to talk about what take we're on this time. <laughs> I haven't heard you say that we are, intro yet. We are adding a new segment this week called Would You Rather, essentially polling the 20 agents on our team each week with a question they think we should answer on the podcast that the listeners might be interested in, that might be funny, we might debate it, we'll see. I the think question? the reason we needed to add it, right, was because they were saying we were too funny in the banter. So they want to get rid of the banter and add this section. More straightforward, more it's agenda. A nerdy, not funny agent podcast. So exactly. just wanted to clarify that. Question for the week. Would you rather have a perfect house in a less than ideal location or a less than ideal house in a perfect location? And they want to debate, right? So I would yeah, pick, sides. pick the perfect house in a less than ideal location. Okay. You're Is that a house with really bad cabinets and thought like, I can't buy this. Mm-mm. But then you go like 30 minutes further away, you know, and maybe you get a brand new house. For those who don't know AJ, he is being sarcastic at the moment. I'm just being a just being John just debating. Buyer, I would take all. I would take the bad house in a good location. 100% of the time, and I already did that. Hmm. Your Instagram photos are going to look AJ, <laughs> AJ also did that at his current house. Okay, fine. Yeah, I did the same thing. So. Same thing. So this week it was pretty easy, except AJ wanted to try and debate it. It's because we need more debating. We need more debate. We were told. told. No, but it's an important question because when we talked about it in the past, right, we get a lot of clients where they get so focused on the realities of what those you know HGTV shows are showing them or what Instagram is showing them in terms of how a house should look that they look for that in the photos versus focusing in on the location that they really want to be in and what works for them. So oftentimes I'll have people that kind of want to expand their search and we'll go out to those houses and they'll go, oh yeah, but this isn't exactly where I want to be. And so trying to ensure that, you know, that is a factor that's being in consideration is important. I mean, I've always been a firm believer that if you buy the bad house in a good location, you tend to, at the end of the day, make it back on the back end because more people are going to be buying the nicer houses in the neighborhood. It's going to drive your price up. Yeah. But it depends. It's person to person as well. Um, So this week we want to talk about current events. We're getting into the nerdiness now. We want to talk about current events. The biggest thing that came out this last week was the student loan forgiveness. Um, And we want to talk about how student loans impact the real estate market. And then, you know, what that loan forgiveness might do to the market moving forward. And then we are also going to talk about SOPs and how they can help your business. If you don't know what an SOP is, you can stay tuned to the end. And that's going to hook you hopefully and keep you listening through until that point. So just to get started here, talk to us about the recent student loan forgiveness. Uh, what happened in the last week for those who didn't hear or might be living under a rock? Yeah, so last week it was announced that uh, single individuals making up to 125000 and couples making up to 250000 would be forgiven 10000 in federal student loans. Um, and those that had received Pell Grants previously, which is reserved for um, the lower income people, would, would get forgiveness of up to $20,000 for their student loans. And setting aside the issues of whether or not the debt should be forgiven, let's talk about what this could mean for the real estate market. So a lot of people have been saying that they believe the student loans are impacting 
some Americans' ability to buy a house. Tell us a little bit more about that. Would you say these people are qualified? They're qualified people. Okay. They know they're, economics. They're, they're, they're people that know economics for right. sure. <laughs> Inside joke on that one. Tell yeah, us what. Uh, yeah, the economists. Uh, so around 45 million people in the U.S. had student loan prior to this. Um, and so it's an important announcement because about 37, people, 37 million people, they're saying, will likely be impacted by this with upwards of 20 million having their debt completely wiped out. So... What we've been hearing forever is is the younger generations, it's a little bit harder for them to buy a house because as they're thinking through things, they have higher debt. It's a little more uncomfortable for them. Um, but then as you think about student loan debt as a percentage of total, uh, from 2004 to today is actually almost tripled. So it was about 3.5% of people's total debt in 2004. Now it's upwards of up to 11%. Um, and really why this is a very pertinent topic, and I, once again, I love that we're talking about this because we're trying to be as relevant as possible and talk about the things that are gonna get naturally brought up in conversation with other people, agents, et cetera. Um, but the biggest reason, thing I would be talking about with other people is the impact to debt to income ratios, how that impacts ability to buy a house, um, and really what lenders are looking at when evaluating. Yeah, so, uh, let's, so, so back up there, for those who don't know what debt to income ratios, let's talk about that for a little bit kind of how they're calculated, what a debt to income ratio sure. is at the basics, um, and why the student loan's being forgiven for somebody that's removing that debt from their uh, balance sheet, kind of what that would mean. Do you want me to take that one? Yeah, go All ahead. Right. Um, so DTI, you referred to, debt to income, um, so whenever we say that, that's what we're referring to, is basically the amount of money you have as debt service each month in relation to your gross income. So if you made 5,000 bucks a month, you had $1,000 in car payments, credit card payments, and student loan payments, um, that would be a 20% DTI. Now, when the lender goes to fit you inside of their box to determine if you qualify for a mortgage, as you guys know, um, they're gonna use a certain percentage DTI to determine if you qualify. These can be as high as 40 to 43% on a conventional loan, and they can go up to 50% on an FHA loan. The majority of them will kind of cap you out in the high 30s to low 40s. Um, so, it, you know, let's say your student loan was $500 of that payment, and now you're one of the 20 million people that it's getting completely wiped out for. Um, well, now your DTI prior to your mortgage payment just went from 20% to 10%. So it opened up $500 in monthly payment um, to qualify to buy a new home. And I think, and I think possibly like that's gonna make a difference because you're gonna be able to pay a little bit more, but maybe we're talking about these people that are at 40% DTI. Now all of a sudden they've taken that $500 payment off. It puts them, I don't know, maybe around the 35% category. It puts them into a qualifying position where they wouldn't, weren't currently, weren't able to buy a house and now they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or what they could buy didn't seem appealing to them and now suddenly there's ability to buy something a little bit more appealing. And so the, the thing that, is, is crazy about this, in my opinion, um, is that everybody's talking about how, so now these millennials, this younger generation, they're removing this debt, so they're gonna have more money, they're gonna maybe qualify for housing, but the current issue in the housing market is that we already have too many buyers. So my question is, is like, how is this gonna affect demand? Is it just gonna continue to make it worse and worse? Yeah, it's an important question. Um, well, first I'll start with, it's, it's a topic where it's really hard to know how people are going to act behaviorally, right? So some people may have been planning to do a trip or buying something different than a house. And all of a sudden having more cash freed up isn't necessarily going to mean they're going to flock to the real estate market. But if you think about it, um, there have been some things that have suggested that student loan debt has impacted the amount of buyers that are out there wanting to buy. So average age of homeowner, homeowner to the median age for first time home buyer is up to 33 now. That was 29 in 1981. 
Um, now, people are getting older, or married older, having children older, that impacts things as well. Um, but it's important to note too that for uh, millennials, uh, home ownership at age 30 was about 42% of millennials. For Gen X, it was 48%, and for baby boomers, it was 51%. So we're already seeing, right, the younger generations are getting into homes later in life and having a harder time getting started on the home ownership journey. And you were saying earlier that student loans in general have increased as well, kind of in that same period, exactly. possibly. So you've seen the percent go down per generation, but you've also seen student loans go up. So you might say there is a decent correlation there. Exactly, yeah, there's definitely a correlation. It's just hard to say exactly what's going to happen. now. Um, the thought is that's interesting is that DTI component that AJ talked about, the average student loan was about 200 to $300 a month before this. So to his point, if you wipe out that 200 $300 a month payment, that DTI impact is actually surprisingly meaningful. So if you want to throw just a mortgage calculator out there on a 30-year mortgage at today's rates, 200 to $300 a month buys you forty dollars to $50,000 in, in home price. So that's going to mean either A, more buyers that are suddenly going, oh, I can, if I can spend 40000 more, I would maybe get into the market now. They might enter the market. Or people will increase their budget by a certain component because that's going to allow them to have a little more flexibility. Now, interest rates are flying all over the place and there's a lot of other things going on, but in theory, it could create additional buyers to the marketplace. Um, it'll just be interesting to see kind of what ends up happening uh, if they do decide to come because if more buyers enter, pricing may just go up and it may not actually be more affordable. I'd say the other tricky thing here too is to keep in mind is that so many of these people are holding high debt amounts and they don't have much cash flow after all of their expenses every month. So the two to three hundred dollars that they're maybe saving now is really only a real two or three hundred in their pocket and while it might increase their you know chances of qualifying for something they like, mm-hmm. they may not have enough money to get a down payment, closing costs, things like that to make things happen. So it'll be interesting to see that as well because they say $10,000, which makes everybody think they're getting $10,000. Yeah. They're just getting it wiped off their you know, their liability side of their mm-hmm. net calculation. So they're just saving the two to 300 bucks a month, which again, helps with mortgage, doesn't help with the down payment so much. Yeah, yeah if you think about how much money you need for a down payment, two dollars $300 a month isn't really getting you there for take a while. five years, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever that's gonna be. Um, the other thing I did wanna discuss here was just multi-generational living, just because I do think that there is some tie here because people talk about how the debt has increased for that generation, which has also caused them more financial struggles, um, meaning that maybe they're in a better position to live with other generations and have multi-generational housing. So we've seen that increase lately. Um, can you chat more about kind of the, the biggest reason for that? I touched on a few of those points already. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about they've got student loan debt after they graduate. The, the rental prices just keep going up and up. Inflation's causing cost of living to go up. Um, and then you you look at the flip side of that, I think, too, that's important is like mom and dad are going, yeah, we refied in 2020, we're at two and a half. We could sell this and downsize, but like got three kids in college, like mm-hmm. why not just see what happens? And maybe we're here another five to seven years because this rate's you know, amazing and by then we'll have paid the house off and we can move on from it. So you're seeing like the the stretch of time that people are living in their forever house mm-hmm. really stretch out a lot too, I'm thinking. I'm seeing and and a lot of that could be due to this sort of thing, right? Is we'll help our kids out once they graduate for a couple years. Yeah, and I think I think and a lot of this stuff is trailing, right? So like we're not gonna be able to say next month, you know, this was the exact impact of this, but we're already seeing this on a weekly basis when we track the new listings in the Twin Cities area. They're consistently each week we're having less and less new listings, which is leading us to think that people are just gonna stay in their houses longer. They're not even wanting to sell them. Exactly because of yeah. those rates. Yeah, the listing activity is to say the least, it's almost pathetic right it's now. Pathetically low. Uh, it's so low that we're looking at it being like, we're, you're gonna have a hard time finding good inventory to buy. So 
to the point, there's even if buyers start entering the pool, which I, I, I mean, I think there's a chance that you'll see more in the spring at a, at a very high level. Less debt means more potential buyers, right? The the challenge is, is the supply side is going to always continue to be a struggle. And you know, if people want to rewind and go to our last podcast on home building, that continues to be a struggle too right now. So until we get supply side up, it doesn't necessarily matter if the debt brings more buyers because that's not where we've been struggling at the moment. And so, do we think that loan forgiveness will then also decrease multi generational housing because the their kids maybe don't need to live with them anymore? They can go buy their own place. It, it could. Uh, but if you think about it, and, and there's been some surveys done, I mean, not to speak for every generation, but the surveys done suggest that millennials like us, Gen Zers, um, they're actually more focused on career than necessarily owning a house, whereas the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, that owning a house is a much bigger portion of their, like, the surveys are like, what what defines the American dream? And that's been, you know, homeownership has been that for a lot of generations, whereas newer generations having a great career and having fulfillment there has been high, rated higher. Hmm. So, you know, if you can still live with mom and dad and save some money and have the career that you want, maybe it's not as big of a deal. And then on top of that, you know, with people, the average age of get marriage is going up. The average age of having children is going up. So with those two things, those can sometimes force homeownership upon you. If they're not mm-hmm. happening, then it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to rush back out to the marketplace. But, um, you know, I'm not to say to speak for all people, even if a quarter of the people who had loan forgiveness start coming to the marketplace, that number goes up on the buy side. And that's going to that's gonna be a massive increase in our the demand that we're seeing currently. It'd be 5 million people joining the buyer pool. Which would be a lot. Yeah. Um, getting into our script of the week then. We're not grilling out or we're not at wine night. For those who don't know, it's uh, Minnesota State Fair time here in Minnesota. And so you're at the State Fair, AJ. You're with some friends. You're eating some cheese curds eating some sweet Martha's cookies, which nobody else will know what that is unless they're from Minnesota. If you don't know, come to Minnesota. You should come. You should. Everybody's talking about student loan forgiveness, though, obviously, because it just came out. How can you use your knowledge on forgiveness and what that means for the real estate market to stand out as the expert amongst them? I would first ask them why we haven't had any fried pickles yet. <laughs> be my first question. And why not Pronto Pops either? And donut beer. And there better be milk with those sweet Martha's cookies. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I would say, you know, people are talking about like it's a hot button, hot button topic. Like we said, should it have been done? Should they have canceled all student debt? Should they have canceled none of it? Should they, whatever, right? Um, and, and so to stand out and say, you know, we actually have talked about this quite a bit on our team from a real estate perspective. You know, what's fascinating is that the average student loan payment in the United States is two to $300. And we just saw 20 million people have that entire debt wiped off their balance sheet. And people are like, oh, and you're like, yeah, two to three hundred dollars. You know, you could increase the amount of money that you could spend on a house by tens of thousands of dollars for that kind of person. So, what's interesting is like the you know the side impact of this that maybe wasn't thought about that much from maybe the White House or politicians or anybody that was de- debating this is we might see a lot of people spending more money on the house that they're buying than they were thinking before, and or just entering the marketplace saying I don't need to rent for another year now. I'm saving three hundred bucks a month, and now I can go out and get the house that I want. So it's really fascinating. And, and I would say I, I love that approach to it, especially because if we're talking current events in a world where everybody's talking about the real estate market and prices mm-hmm. and where they think prices are going to go and they're going, this can't hold up, this can't continue. And then all of a sudden they're just taking all this money away from potential buyers that they don't have to pay anymore. And they might enter this market even creating more price appreciation when people thought it wasn't going to, it was going to go the other way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it opens up a lot of, of further conversations. I mean, I know in today's political climate, 
most people at a cookout or at the safe fair want to have an active discussion and debate about what's going on and, and want to view other people's opinions and potentially change their views. Um, very sarcastically for anyone who didn't get that. Uh, you can kind of change it in a way that's going to allow you to have a more beneficial discussion instead of just exactly. fighting over politics. Exactly, which I think is Like, for really instance, cool. if I told Luke I'll take a loan from him to go buy the fried pickles, <laughs> he would forgive it for me, but that might increase my demand for the Pronto Pop. And then the prices of the Pronto Pops could go up. Go up. Through the room. Yeah. It's just some state fair economics for you. Well, that's, that's enough nerdy economics for the day. And the weird thing now is that we're going to get into something that's equally as nerdy. We're going to talk about SOPs. Somebody tell me, what is an SOP and why should that matter for this? They're very near and dear to my heart. <laughs> yeah, um, so an, if anybody has um, read those, what's those, the E-Myth books? They talk a lot about franchising, and SOPs are directly born out of that. So if you've, again, not to get too nerdy here, but if you've watched the McDonald's. What is an SOP? An SOP is a standard operating procedure. Okay. There you go. Um, how we do things. How we do things. So if you've watched, um, what's the McDonald's movie called? Oh, yeah, I should know. Guys, I don't know I don't, it. But it's a great movie, and, and, and basically that whole thing and how our entire economy changed after that, really after McDonald's. I mean, it started with cars, but you see it in the service industry is they started creating SOPs for every part of their business so that they could take a book and they could say, let's start a new McDonald's. Here's your book. And everything's going to happen the exact same way. The consumer knows exactly what to expect. And that's how we've built our team on a smaller model, right? It's okay, when a transaction happens, push a button and boom, here's all the stuff that happens afterwards. And so we've employed uh, a couple of guys out of the Philippines, our virtual assistants, shout out to Summit Solutions for the hookup on that. They're uh, Jason and Jeff and they're awesome. Um, And they started creating SOPs for every part of the business. So when this happens, what happens next? Or how do we execute on this thing? And so we have it all written down so that we can, we could hire somebody new and shift positions around and they would know exactly what to do from day one. And so if I'm, if I'm a newer agent, but I'm to the point where I have a developed business, right? And I'm listening to this, how, how can I use SOPs? I've never used an SOP. How can I use this to grow my business and be more efficient? Think about like, we talked about daily routine on the first podcast, right? Mm-hmm. What do you do on a daily basis? How do you have consistency in that? This is really taking that, applying it one step further to kind of the activities that are a part of your daily routine. So you wake up and say, I'm going to do this thing today. It's how do I know exactly how I'm going to do this thing consistently every single time in a way that's going to add value. So how do you send out your cards thanking clients for their time? Right? Where does that information go? How do you hear about it? How do you then write it? How do you then send it out? The more efficiently you do things, the more things you can get out and the more you can continuously drive your business outside of just these tasks. And it's not chaotic in your head the whole time. You're, you're just doing it. And what, g- give me a few examples of like, what are we using? What the, what SOPs do we have? Yeah, the easiest example use? would be transaction coordination. So yep. um, Google form gets turned in, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. We use paperless pipeline to manage that for us. Um, that's just literally a task manager that helps us throughout the process. We've got you know, a 60 task checklist that gets kicked off when a file gets turned in. Mm-hmm. Um, we know what happens once it gets turned in, leading up to the closing, right after the closing, 30 days after the closing, and it all kind of flows into other things that then have their own SOP for them. Yeah, or like think about like we don't, it's not technically like an SOP, but like think about when a call comes in from a lead. How do you respond to that call? Which questions do you ask them? What are the information are you trying to gather every single time? How do you document it? How do you follow up? All of that stuff, if you can do it consistently and know how to do it and have it documented somewhere, it's going to drive more value. Yeah, and so you talk about documentation. I mean, to get to the point where you have the SOPs, essentially what you do is you just find a task, 
transaction management, lead comes in, yep. and you write down everything you've done in the past for that lead, and then you add a checklist on this happens every single time this happens, mm-hmm. essentially, correct? Yep. That's exactly We've right. done most of it on Google Docs. It's all saved in the drive. Mm-hmm. Um, new like agent joins path. our team, and it's just I send an email. It's like, here's the workflow. I like a good flowchart, too. <laughs> Josh, like, what's, tell us about flowcharts. Flowcharts are basically like, they're think about like a choose-your-an-adventure book, right? So as things happen, you go different directions. Um, so said differently is like if the lead tells you this, then you go to here. Works really well for scripting. Yeah, exactly. So it, really any process you. that can go multiple different directions. So like, oh, they said I already have an agent. Then you say, okay, you should probably talk to your agent about this. If they say I don't already have an agent, then move on to the next part of the process and tell them about the house specifically your schedule is showing. I think for scripting especially, this could be really, really important for people on a lead standpoint because you could be on the phone with somebody and literally have the flowchart directly in front exactly. of you. Exactly, yep. And so you won't miss anything. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else for the people about SOPs or flowcharts? No. No. Do we make it a 90 minute podcast? If you want, if you want more information, you want to know what tasks we have for transaction management or what our flowcharts for leads look like, because yep. we do have those, send us an email. We're willing to share anything we have with people um, to help you grow your business. And make sure to rank us from zero to funniest ever, please. On the Thank last you. podcast, especially, because I don't think this one was very funny. <laughs> we tried. That's all we have this week. However, this was our fifth. This is podcast yeah. five, I believe. Yeah. Do you guys remember growing up the, the best number of all time when you were playing sports? It was number five. No, it was eight. Like, you were eight? I like number seven. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was number five. So this is our uh, best podcast of all time. That means. All right. There we go. I, we're looking for eight and what? Seven. Looking and seven. That will come in a couple weeks. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.